0: Well, good morning, Bethel, and uh, really looking forward to our time this morning as we near the conclusion of this summer's journey in the book of Psalms. Would you bow with me and let's pray together before we dive into God's word. Thank you, God, so much for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the gift of your presence, your Holy Spirit made possible by your son laying down over death and that you raised Christ from the victorious, even over death and that you raised Christ from the dead and that he now sits at your right hand. As we come to your word, lead us, guide us, encourage us and show us Jesus that we might behold him in his glory and be transformed to be more and more like him. We pray in his name. Amen and amen. This morning, grab your Bibles out. We are finishing off this summer's Psalms of summer. We're in Psalm 69. And so turn in your Bibles there with me from your homes. And one of the beautiful things about the summer that I I hope you have gotten to experience a little bit is that it is a chance to have a change of pace right it's a, it's a chance to um, to change the regular routine to get out of the regular routine of life and and the busyness and the chaos and the running from here to there for for school and all the things that come with that for work and all the things that come with that with the the kids and and running around for all the things that come there to have a, a settle down <sighs> to to go into a little bit of a a cruise mode to get some, to relaxation and refreshment time. And and, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing. But as the saying goes, you know, our greatest strengths of getting this time to kind of weakness and get dangers in the midst of getting this time to kind of start to and get out of our routines and slow down and start to cruise a little bit, is that that can also leak into our relationships with God, into our devotion and our delight and our enjoyment and our commitment to Jesus. As we start to slow down our routines or change our routines or get out of our rhythms, we, we start to let the, the, the slide of our regular times in God's word, go over to the side. We we let the the regular routine of our family devotions getting into the word kind of creep away and just filter off. We we let the the trips on the weekends for camping or getting to the beach early to get a spot pull us away from our regular rhythm of uniting together with God's people to worship. Him, we, we get out of the rhythms in a break over the summer from small group and, and then we end up not having that commitment of brothers or sisters speaking into our lives and us speaking into a good thing and, the, the, and, and with this can be wonderful and need. again, the summertime is a good thing and the, the change of pace can be wonderful and needed and we all need to have our tanks refreshed and renewed and filled up sometimes, but the danger is sometimes... This can turn into a summer slide with our walks with Jesus. A summer slide that pulls us away from our delight and our devotion and our focus and our passion for Jesus. And so as we are here, Labor Day weekend, coming to the end of the Psalms of summer, and this summer we finish off with Psalm 69. It is such a beautiful psalm that that draws us to bring the summer slide to a stop. It draws us to see and behold Jesus jumping off the pages of this psalm to to give us a shot in the arm. So if you find yourself today in one of those spots, and whether it's from the last few weeks of slowing down, the last few months, or maybe it's even beyond the summer slide, but it's in the last couple of years of sliding, and you really want to get your heart fired up again for Jesus. You really want to lean in and see that devotion fanned into flame again out of those just like flickering coals. Then this psalm title we begin with it for, frames the whole psalm. And I Psalm sixty-nine, the title we begin with it, it, it frames the whole psalm for us. It says for the director. Of Music. So once again, this is very familiar. What we've seen in the past weeks—it's a song led for the worship leader to the tune of "Lilies," one of the common tunes back in the day with David, and it's of David. It's a psalm of David, King David. We've seen this many, many times. David ruled as the king of Israel from about 1010 BC to about 970 BC. So give or take a few years. Here's what this means: this psalm that we are about to study is about 3,000 years old. It was written about 1000 BC. Now you might say at first, well, that's kind of a cool piece of trivia. Okay, whatever, and just kind of move on. But no, no, no. What you're going to notice here as we dig into the psalm is that that is hugely important. This psalm was written 1000 BC. This is written 3000 thousand years ago. And this is a song that from its original writing by the pen of David and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit became woven into the DNA of God's people. It was given into the songbook of God's people. And this began to be a song that when God's people would gather all together to worship at the tabernacle or the temple, they had these songs, families of the people of God would meet in their homes on a a sink. when the families of the people of God would meet in their homes on a, on a smaller setting to worship God, this is one of the songs they would sing. When the people of God in their own personal private devotions to meet with the Lord would pull out a scroll or would recite some scripture they had memorized and they would sing a song or hum a prayer, this is a song that they had memorized. This is woven into their very DNA of the people of God for a thousand years afterwards, this This was written from David all the way down to Christ and on from there with the people of God. This is like for us today. Like if if I were to start to sing and forgive me, A, B, C, D, what comes next? You know, right? It's just woven into you. Mary had a... You, you know how this goes. You don't even need to think. It's just ingrained into our culture, our day, our minds, our hearts, that we just know it. This is what this psalm. In one book I read, people succinctly summarize in the past. And one book I read just very succinctly summarizes what this psalm is all about. Here's, here's how G.K. Beale put it. Psalm 69 is an individual lament in which the psalmist describes his plight of deep suffering, prays to God for deliverance, and calls upon God to exercise his wrath against the sufferer's foes. And that's in one simple sentence that captures so well what this whole psalm is all about. It's a longer psalm, as you have probably see as you look in your Bible there. We're not going to hit on every single verse, but that really captures it, what Beale says there. You know, it begins verses 1 to 4. David here, he describes the pain of his enemies coming with these accusations against him and coming after him. He laments his innocence in verses four and five. He pleads with God for help. You see that in verse one, you see a longer segment of this pleading for help in verse 13 to 20. He begs God to deal with these vile, wicked accusers. He's like, don't let them just get away with this, God. Like, this is wrong, and you need to do justice to deal with these, these vile, wicked liars. In verses 22 to 28, he finishes off with verses 30 to 36 with this declarations of trust. Off in this, as so many of the laments, almost every one of them finish off just with this declarations of trust and praise, even though he's walking through these incredibly dark valleys. And, and we could spend the remainder of our time here this morning... Walking through and looking at David's experience and, and learning about him as he prays, as one who prays when, when accusations of false lies or, or false accusations are coming against him. And how do we deal with it when we are actually innocent of what people are accusing us of? And how do we pray and respond to that? We could learn from David and, and the way God brought him through this lament and brings him to praise. And, and each of those things would be very legitimate. Sermons and, and learnings from this text, but but what I want to do is something a little bit different here today in Psalm 69, because Psalm 69 is a standout psalm in the entire book of Psalms. In the entire book of Psalms, there's hundred and fifty different Psalms. And did you know that Psalm 69 that we're gonna look at today? is the second most quoted and referenced with direct quotes and allusions in the New Testament coming out of Psalm 69, of all of the Psalms, in particular with a focus upon Jesus and Jesus on the cross. Did you know that? Behind Psalm 6- 22, Psalm 22 has the first most, and then Psalm 69, second most du- we're going to see in Quotes from Psalm 69 or allusions to what we're going to see in Psalm 69 pointing to Christ out of all the Psalms. In fact, in my study, I see at least 22 different instances that are picked up from Psalm 69 in a whole bunch of different spots, and I'll show us a few of these in the New Testament pointing ahead to Jesus. 22 different references many of them that actually ex- expand more multiple verses, which means almost the entire psalm, almost every verse in this psalm has some connection, has some quote, has some illusion that is picked up, and it's like this giant neon arrow saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. It's shouting from the rooftop, Jesus. Remember, 1,000 B.C., A thousand years before he came, the God of the universe led David to write this psalm as a giant prophetic promise of what was to come, and Jesus fulfills it. And this is an incredible psalm. As we try to get out of this summer slide that's just going to ignite our heart in worship and adoration, let's die souls, okay? So let's dive in. Let's dive in. Verse 1. Psalm 69, verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in my depths. the psalmist says, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. The floods engulf me. This poetic language, it describes this sense of Drowning under judgment, drowning under condemnation. The the waves of accusation, the the waves are pounding with punishment upon the psalmist here. That's interesting. In Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus looking ahead to his coming crucifixion, knowing what was coming. His disciples didn't get it yet, but he describes, you know how he describes his coming suffering? It's coming, being pounded with the waves of accusation, coming under the wrath of Almighty God for all of our sin. Do you know how he describes it? He describes it as the baptism that is to come. That is to say, the the immersion into the waves, the waters, the, the depths of the punishment and judgment of water here. He's picking up on the very theme of these first two verses in Psalm 69. Verse three, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is part my God. My eyes fail looking for my God. Picture in your mind's eye Jesus when he hung on the cross. Do you, do you remember that scene? Jesus is hanging on the cross, the crowds are surrounding him, and he calls out to God, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? He's crying out to God, very much echoing the very sentiments, crying out for help, my throat is parched, my eyes fail, looking for God, where are you? Picture just a few hours before that, Jesus in the garden, at night, on his face, the drips of blood and sweat coming down his cheeks, and the anguish, angst, knowing what is about to come. God, if you could remove not my will, please do it. This suffering that's going to come, but not my will. Yours be done. He prays, echoing these verse, these words here from the psalmist, the book of Hebrews picks up and describes these two accounts and surely probably many others as well. Listen to what it says, Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. That is to say, Psalm 69, verse 3 was fulfilled in Christ. When it says, I am worn out, calling for help, my throat is parched, my eyes fail, looking for my God. This is Jesus' prayer. Verse 4 continues. First little bit of verse 4. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. These words so profoundly again capture that scene of Jesus in his last hours. Do you, do you remember? Do you remember when Pilate brings Jesus out after he's been mocked and ridiculed and, and, and made fun of and humiliated and all these different things and Pilate brings him out in front of the crowd and says, I haven't found anything wrong with him, but I, I, I roughed him up a little bit. But what do you want me to do with him now? And then as far as the eye can see, this way and that way and over here, crowds that outnumber the hairs on my head, that shout out with blood in their eyes and hate in their hearts towards Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him. Verse 4 continues in the psalm, Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me without cause. Jesus had Psalm 69 on his own mind, knowing that whole thing was going to go down. John 15, the last night Jesus is with his disciples, he quotes Psalm 69 for his disciples. Because again, Jesus just like all the Jews of his day would have memorized this psalm and sung this psalm with the people in the temple, with their family in their worship, in their own private time. The disciples would have too. And John 15, verse 25, guess what it says? Jesus says, this is to fulfill what was written in the law. The was going to hate me without reason. Jesus quoting, saying, do you know what's about to happen? The world is going to hate me. And guess what? It's all because... I am fulfilling what Psalm 69 verse 4 says. Jesus knew Psalm 69 and he knew that it was pointing ahead to him. Verse 4 finishes off and into verse 5. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You know God my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. And again, This so profoundly describes Jesus, does it not? Who is the one who restores what he did not steal, brothers and sisters? Who is the one who steps in the gap to take the punishment for what he did not deserve or earn? It's talking about the one and only one who can restore your soul and my soul. The one and only one who can take up the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve. It's talking about the one and only one who never, think about this, never spoke one word out of in gossip. Never spoke one word out of line in gossip, in a lie, even a little white lie, or in vengeance. How many times have I, have you, let our words be out of line in these ways and fallen short? We can't even count the number of times. In the last year we have done this. Jesus, not one in his entire life, totally spotless. His heart was never drawn to covet, to envy, to have jealousy towards another. How many times do we see that buddy who just got a new boat and they're like, oh man, I wish I could have enough money and a raise and a bonus from work to be able to get a boat like that. How many times do we see Even in the last few weeks, the family photo of a friend up on Facebook, and it just looks like they had such a wonderful vacation. And it's like, why is my family so chaotic and such a disaster? Why can't I have the family that they have and the vacation like they have? How many times do we wish we would be able to just get, what is it? We look with jealousy. We look with envy. We look with covetedness at at what others have. Jesus not once ever fell into these pits. His eyes never once looked at another woman with lust or impurity. His, His heart was never overcome with selfishness or greed or pride. Even the Hint of the teeniest, tiniest, hint of pride. His whole life was completely in line. He never walked the path of a hypocrite, saying one thing to one person in one place and doing another in another place. Oh, how far do we fall short in our hypocrisy? Not even keeping our own standards. Living one way for these and another. But for this, living one way in A perfect way in private when the doors are closed. But not Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life in every way. And yet, he is the one who is pounded with the waves of judgment. He is the one who is drowning in despair. Why? Why? verse 4 tells us, to restore what I did not steal. To bear a penalty that was not his. To step in the gap for you and for me. A thousand years in advance, we are told in this psalm about one who would come to step in for you and for I. The psalmist says in verse 8, we continue, I am a street Jesus owned my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons. Literally, literally Jesus own brothers. You can read it in John chapter 7. They mock him and make fun of him. Jesus' spiritual brothers, the very leaders of the people of God, who had this whole psalm memorized from teeny tiny toddler age. They are the ones who rally the crowd to kill Jesus. And they turn their backs. The brothers turn against Jesus. Jesus, as verse 8 said, would happen. Verse 9, for zeal for your house consumes me, the psalmist says, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Again, we see this picked up in the New Testament. Do you remember in the Gospel of John when Jesus starts out his ministry and the first time, once his ministry is going, he goes into the temple and he sees These groups of people all around the temple, and they've got tables of God where he things and trying to make money, and they've turned the place of God where he is to be worshipped into a marketplace and a den of thieves and robbers. And what does Jesus do? Jesus goes and he flips over the tables and he grabs a whip and he whips them out of the house, out of the out of God's house. He runs them out of the courtyard. And then his disciples, who had Psalm 69 memorized from when they were young boys all the way up, immediately were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's the fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 9. John 2, 16 says it. To those who sold doves, Jesus said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples, verse 17 of John chapter 2, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69 verse, that's the song. His disciples remembered Psalm 69. That's the song that we sang for years and years and years when we were kids with our families, with our parents, when we gathered together to worship. And it's pointing to Jesus in this moment. Jesus is the one who fulfills Psalm 69. And he did all of this not for himself, but in obedience to his father. In obedience to God. The apostle Paul gets in on the party here. He quotes Psalm 69, the other half of Psalm 69, verse 9. For even Christ, it says in Romans, did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Jesus was insulted as he hung on the cross. The crowds around hurled insults at him. The criminals on the other crosses mocked and ridiculed him. He was beaten and despised in order to please God. The insults and the ridicule that were against him were against God because he was God's Savior, the chosen Messiah, God's chosen rescuer, the Savior, all in order to fulfill God's perfect plan. We could take time. We don't have it. But we could look at verses 10 to 12 and see how this points ahead to the whole scene playing out with the soldiers and crowds mocking Jesus at Golgotha in Matthew 27. We could could look at how verses 13 to 20 so, so powerfully alludes to and references alongside of Jesus' prayer in the garden and Jesus' prayer hanging on the cross and the similarities, but then also the contrast that we see there. You see verse 21 They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Does this ring any bells? The whole scene with Jesus hanging on the cross? Let me read for you from John 19. Later, knowing all that was was now completed, and so the scriptures would be fulfilled. What scripture would be fulfilled, you might ask? Well, guess what? Psalm 69. Jesus says, I am thirsty. And so what did they do? A jar of wine was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. The very ones who were bent on the destruction of Jesus, torturing him to the point of death, even they were fulfilling Psalm 69 unbeknownst to them, but they were doing exactly what God had said was going to happen in Psalm 69, all pointing ahead to Jesus. I could give you a whole bunch more. Let's finish off right at the very end, okay? Let me just grab a couple of the last verses and show you how they point to Jesus. Psalm 69, verse 30. I will praise God's name in song, glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull. See, Jesus not only lived the perfect life and went to the cross and drank the sour wine and was overcome with the waves of punishment and and suffering and judgment, death literally could not hold him. Death could not keep him. The grave couldn't contain him. Why? Because Jesus did it all to the glory and the pleasure of his heavenly at his baptism, we saw this repeated over and over in Jesus' life, right? At his baptism, he goes down into the water, and then when he comes back up after being baptized, the heavens are opened, and a voice from heaven comes, and God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Or when Peter, James, and John went up onto the mountain, and the glory of Jesus was unfolded at the transfiguration moment. And they fall on their faces in fear. And Jesus is glowing like the sun and lightning. And then the voice from God shakes the very thresholds of the mountain. This is my son. Listen to him. In him I am well pleased. And Jesus went to the very cross and grave. And then overcame death. Pleasing our heavenly father. Far more than an ox sacrificed, far more than a checklist of spiritual rituals obeyed. Jesus satisfied God's perfect plan to redeem you all upon the name and me and everyone who would call upon the name of Christ. And God was pleased to raise Jesus from the dead. Because of all this, what jumps forth so profoundly from this psalm here, Psalm 69, or should I say, who jumps forward so profoundly from this psalm? This psalm is shouting from the rooftops, look at Jesus. Draw your attention towards Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus a thousand years before he came. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, from every verse of every part of this psalm, look, it's going to point ahead to Jesus. And so why does this matter? If we find ourselves in the midst of the summer slide, if we find ourselves into cruise mode in our relationship with God, if we find ourselves out of the rhythm and routine and our devotion and delight in God has sort of set us off with dwindle words, how does this psalm help us? Well, let me close this off with four words that I think lead us to really summarize and have takeaways from this psalm. First one, okay? First word, it's this, humiliation. How does this psalm inspire us and stir us heart, our hearts up? Humiliation. See, many, many, many years ago, really before you might even say there was years, one of God's leading servants, one of his leading angels, decided and rallied a whole bunch of others to follow with him. I think I can show that I am better, bigger, smarter, stronger, mightier, wiser than God. And so I am going to prove God wrong. And so that angel, Satan, the devil, led a giant rebellion against God to try and usurp God and take control and show that he was bigger and wiser and stronger and better than God in all kinds of ways. And this led to all kinds of distress things to go in the world and pulling Adam and Eve awry and trying to do all these things to go against God and to show that he was stronger. Do you know what? Psalm 69 does amongst many different things. Do you know what Psalm 69 does? Psalm 69, written 1,000 B.C., is God saying to Satan, hey, guess what? Here's my game plan. You think you're so big, you're so strong, you're so mighty, you're so wise, so much wiser than I. Here's what I'm going to do. I would love to see you try to stop me. It's like picture modern day, okay? God is standing at center ice. Overtime's come to an end. It's penalty shot to win the game. God stands at center ice. He he yells down to Satan in the net, and he says, I'm going to deke left, deke right, go top right corner, right over your glove, and put it in the net. He gives him the whole playbook of what he's going to do, and then God skates down the ice, does exactly what he's going to do, and then still scores. To show Satan, you've got absolutely nothing. You think you're mighty. You think you're strong. You think you've got this all together. But I will show you who is really God. Now, friends, if you find yourself in the midst of the summer slide and you're struggling and you're starting to think, man, there's so many things chirping in my ears, these feelings of, is it shame? What are people going to think? I've been away from church for so long. What's someone going to think when I finally show back up? What are they going to say about me? Is it, is it shame, man? Like, I know I shouldn't be struggling like this. I've fumbled and stumbled so many times with this struggle, but I'm back here again. Man, I I don't know if I can do it again. I don't know if I can get back into the Word. I don't know if I can get back into a small group. I don't know if I can do it. And and all these things are chirping in your ears. Here's what you need to know, okay? Psalm 69 tells us God is way bigger, way stronger, way mightier than the enemy that's lying in your ear. Do you know that? He smoked Satan, when he sent Christ on the cross, Jesus crushed the devil. That's what Psalm 69 declare Humiliate your pride, Satan. A thousand years notice, hey, guess what? I'm going to utterly humiliate your pride, Satan. And so we do not need to fear. We have the God on our side who is mightier, friends, who raised Jesus from the dead. Here's the second word, anticipation. As we've already seen a bunch of times, right? This psalm was written about thousand BC, give or take a few years It's a thousand years in advance. And, And what began to happen from the very beginning when it was written and on the way down for a year, a decade, a century, 10 centuries was the people of God began to sing this song They sang it when they were corporately all gathered together. They sang it when they were individually in their homes. They sang it personally, privately, when they were having their worship times. And each time they sang this song, and each time they memorized it, and each generation that successively got passed down, guess what it was doing? It was like this this giant snowball catching momentum going down the hill of anticipation. Who is the one that this psalm is talking about, they've started to ask and wonder. Who is the one who is innocent but is going to restore us even though they did not pay the penalty? Who is the one who's been, had his own guilt and stuff? Yes, I know David was somewhat of that, but, but he actually had his own guilt and stuff, right? So who is this really talking about? It was somewhat fulfilled in David, but it was not fully fulfilled in David. Who is the one this psalm is pointing to? And so for over hundreds and hundreds, up to a thousand years, it was building anticipation and leading towards Jesus' when Jesus would come onto the scene and say, look, this is the one who ultimately fulfills Psalm 69. He's the chosen one who has come. And so Psalm 69 was building the sense of anticipation for God's people, which we can rejoice in. But here's the other thing. We now read this and we see we see that Psalm 69 was building anticipation to point ahead to Jesus. And then within this book that God has given to us, guess what else? We have a whole host of other texts that are building anticipation for us, right? Because Jesus didn't just come once. He's actually coming a second time. He's coming back. And we have all of these texts that are telling us that Jesus is coming back maybe soon. And we need to, if you find yourself in the midst, thinking about come Lord Jesus, come. And so here's the question. If you find yourself in the midst of the summer slide, How much are you reflecting upon the fact that Jesus is coming back? How often are you stopping and pausing to consider that today, this very day, Jesus could return? How much is the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus and your resurrection altering and affecting the way you're living your life right now and the decisions you're making this is given to us here to build our anticipation for the first coming of Christ and to remind us that we've got anticipation for the second coming of Christ to shake us out of our slumber, dear brothers and sisters. Here's a third one, third word. Excuses. Excuses. See, without a doubt, there is there's simply, like, there's no arguing. Proven fact, of manuscripts text, no argument. It is a proven fact. We have manuscripts textually, like scientifically have been documented to show that these texts are actually from papyrus that came before Jesus. So there, there is no question, this is a text that was written hundreds of years before Jesus. Everyone, even the most ardent skeptic, acknowledges that. Now we look and see that this fulfills Jesus Christ. This points ahead and tells us about the one who is to come, the Messiah, the Savior, the rescuer of the world. And it's been put into the most published book in all of human history. To be translated into almost every language in all the world for everyone to see. So that no one can have an excuse. And even more, you and me now after we hear and study a text like this. See, there is just no excuse for any of us to say... Well, I just didn't really know for sure if Jesus really was who he says he was. I didn't really know for sure if I should really change my life to start following him. I didn't really know if he was worthy of me giving my life to him. I didn't really know if I could trust him. There are no excuses because he's the one who wrote the book a thousand years in advance and then fulfills it perfectly. And there are literally dozens upon dozens upon dozens of other examples like Psalm 60 that do the same thing hundreds of years before predicting ahead of Jesus that he perfectly fulfills but even if we only had some of any nine it's like a giant bazooka that takes the knees out from under us of any excuse other than to fourthly and finally fall on our faces and worship before Jesus. This psalm is not just an interesting history lesson. It's not just a factoid for your brain to get big and we'll tell some trivia. Oh, psalm 69 has the second most New Testament references in it. No, no, this is meant to stir up my heart, your heart to worship for the Lord because guess what we are seeing here? We are seeing reminders of what Ephesians 1 picked up on. Before the foundation of the world, God had a purpose and plan to choose a people for himself through Christ. A thousand years before Jesus came, God had a plan and he told David what it was to write it down about how Jesus would come, how Jesus would suffer as the innocent one who would be accused by crowds beyond what you could know, who are trying to crush him under the wrath of Almighty God, who even the very enemies who are trying to crush him would fulfill his plan to rescue you and me. God had this whole plan orchestrated for all of eternity in love for us, friends. To rescue us, to save our hearts and our souls. And so how can we not, when we see the depth of what Psalm 69 is actually showing us, how can we not just fall in our faces and worship? How can we not be brought to this point where the summertime slide and slumber and cruising is just brought to a halt and our hearts are stirred afresh. The raging flame of devotion to God is fanned again to a raging fire as we behold Christ in Psalm 69.